Time to strap on our thinking caps. Everybody at 95th, wake up. We are in a new series called The Holy Trinity. You know, my wife some years ago had the opportunity to baptize a friend. She had led this friend to Christ, and this friend had asked her if she'd baptize. Jen was so excited, she told me, I'm going to baptize somebody. She had never done this before. And I said, you're lucky to have a pastor as a husband who can teach you how to baptize somebody. And so I gave her some instructions on how it's done. One of the things I always say is make sure you get them fully underwater. Nothing worse than a half-baptized person. And so <laughs> I say, you may need to push. Push down a little bit. Hold them there for a second. Shake them around. Make sure it takes. And then let them up. I said, before you baptize them, though, you have to say the right thing. The Bible tells us what to say. And so I, you know, showed her and reminded her. I I suggested maybe you'd want a little card. Sometimes we'll actually tape a card to the baptismal so they can read and get it right. Jen's like, I don't need a card. I'm like, oh, excuse me. All right, well, you go for it, girl. Well, she got up on the stage under the lights and she freaked out. You know, sometimes our brain up here just kind of, you know, goes blank. And that's what happened to my poor wife. I was in the front row watching her. And she's like, um, I, I now baptize you. And the friend got all ready, grabbed her nose, took a deep breath. And Jen said, in the name of God, Father, Son, and Son. And uh, she forgot the third person of the Trinity, just completely blanked out. Uh, uh, the poor friend had to take another breath. <gasps> We are ready to go. And Jen just didn't want to do it until she had gotten it right. So I finally had to call out from the front row, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, that's right. Holy Spirit. Bonk. You know, and she went down. So. Now, what's odd is my wife does know the three persons of the Holy Trinity. She really does. In fact, Jen's passionate about this topic. In fact, Jen's the reason we're having this series. My wife has been, I was going to say nagging requesting for a couple years now that we do a series on the Holy Trinity. She's like, Jeff, this is such a beautiful yet misunderstood, uh, we need to study this doctrine. And she's right. And I'm really excited about it as we launch a three-week series on the Trinity. God is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. I thought the best way to begin to explain it, the doctrine that is, is to give you a historical understanding of how the doctrine was formed. Now, you say, wait a minute, God was formed in this way? No, he has always been the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But our understanding of God's identity and nature has developed over the biblical history. As God revealed more and more of who he was through the prophets and through the divine or the biblical drama, you know, that has come into clear. It's kind of like a dot-to-dot book. Have you ever uh, done, remember the Connect the Dots when you were a kid? I came across a dot-to-dot book for adults. This baby has over 1,000 dots per puzzle. I mean, it's just mind-numbing when you look at it. A lot of fun. At first, you look at it, and you're like, there is nothing there. I don't see anything. 
But then you start connecting the dots and the picture starts to form. I shot a little video of myself filling out one of these. I thought you'd be impressed with how fast I can go. Uh, All right, truth is they're probably speeding this up a little bit. Uh, And as I look a little closer, I realize, yeah, that's not my hand at all. This is off YouTube, all right? So I stole this there. But sure enough, as as the dots are connected, you begin to say, oh, I didn't see that at first, but it's a crocodile there, sure enough. And the same is true with theology as we connect the dots, as God reveals more dots and enables us to put together. You know, theology is the study of God. It's seeing the picture of who God is. And sometimes as Time progresses and God speaks and reveals more. And as we learn more, more dots are connected. And the picture of who God is and what he's like becomes more and more clear. That's what we find in the Bible. As we try to connect the first dots, surprisingly, uh, the first dots come to us at the very beginning of the Bible. You know, the first two two verses of the Bible begin to allude to God's triune nature. The Trinity is not on display but it's beginning to be revealed in its primitive expression. Here, let me show you. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that verse tell us about God? Well, he was there in the beginning. Before the beginning ever started, so God was. He is eternal. It also tells us that he's creator. He made it all. This you would not know unless you dove into the original languages, so let me explain. I've highlighted God here because the word Elohim, the Hebrew word translated God, is plural, unexpected, and grammatically inappropriate, particularly when we note that created, this verb, is in the singular form. You know, you're supposed to have nouns that go with their verb, but yet we have a plural noun and a singular verb. The very first verse, starting to hint at the fact that in some ways God is plural. And yet in other ways he is very singular. Isn't that interesting? Verse 2, Genesis 1, 2 continues. And now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this creator God has an aspect of who he is that's referred to as the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is hovering, drawing near to planet Earth. And right away we're starting to see the third person of the Trinity showing up in in verse 2. Later in Genesis 1, verse 26, after God has created the perfect world for humanity, it says in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Do you notice the us and the our plural? God is speaking about his image. To be clear, we are not made in the image of angels or any other beings. We are made in the image of God. The rest of the Bible makes that crystal clear. But God says, let us Make mankind in our, plural, image. The plurality of who God is is being revealed even in the very first chapter of the Bible. The Old Testament goes on and 
We see more evidence of this. We see God the Father obviously reigning on the throne in heaven. And we see God the Holy Spirit showing up in the Old Testament, not on all believers, but only on some believers at certain times when the need uh, was required. But we also see another person. There's this mysterious being called the angel of the Lord. And the, the appearance of the angel of the Lord is often, and he's always a visible manifestation of God. It becomes clear if you read the context that the angel of the Lord is God. So who is this God that's being revealed? Many theologians believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son, showing up uh, even then. And so the Old Testament has all this vague uh, allusion to God being plural. Well, that is brought into even greater clarity as we transition into the New Testament, particularly one event. Uh, One of the greatest events where a lot of dots were connected is the baptism of Jesus Christ. The baptism of Jesus is the revelation of Christ to a world. It's the beginning of his public ministry. It's the, and now I present you, Jesus, okay? So he's been living in obscurity until this time. His cousin, John the Baptist, has been ministering publicly, preparing the way for Jesus. And on this day, John's baptizing people, and there comes Jesus. And you know what John says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You talk about that's getting connected. The people for a thousand years had been, more than a th- two thousand years, had been practicing the sacrificial system. They, they would sacrifice a lamb. And they didn't fully get it, but they knew that this is pretty cool. I'm guilty. I put my head on the lamb. The lamb receives my sin. The lamb dies in my place. I don't get it, but I like it. You know, and they were off the hook. They found freedom in the death of the lamb. And then John says, remember that lamb? Look at this one. He is the lamb of God. And through his death, the sins of the world are forgiven. And the people are like, oh, that's connecting. You're kidding me. He, he, oh, well, not only that, the baptism of Jesus reveals the very nature of God. More dots are connected in extreme fashion. Matthew 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting on Jesus. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, this voice from heaven, let's start with that. Who is that voice? It's God speaking. God The Father, if he's calling Christ his Son, that would make him the Father. So the Father's voice is proclaiming, this is my Son. What does this tell us about Jesus? He is the Son of God. It's interesting, that title carries divine meaning to it. They always were expecting the Messiah, and Jesus was the Messiah, but he was more than that. He was the Lamb of God, but he was more than that. He is the Son of God. 
And that became clear at that moment. And the, the, the third person of the Trinity can't stay out of this great moment. He says, I'm coming too. And in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit lands on the shoulder of Jesus. And in this sacred moment, the people are like, whoa, whoa. My mind is blown as I am seeing God in plurality revealed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together. Dots connected. And then Jesus later began teaching. And in the teaching of Jesus, we see even more. His divine nature became so evident as he said, I and the Father am, are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And people were like, holy cow, this is amazing. Jesus is divine. And that's becoming more clear. At the very end of Jesus' public earthly ministry before he ascended into heaven. He gathered his disciples together for a sacred baton pass moment. And Jesus looked at them and he said, just as I have been turning people who are far from God and bringing them to a reconciled relationship with the Lord, now it's your turn to do that. You go and make disciples. Let me read. This is called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus said, go and make disciples, people of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the... This is the verse Jen should have read a little more closely. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's been pointed out that the term Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, it was Tertullian, this theologian who was born around 160 A.D., He's the one who put that term on it. But though the term isn't found in the Bible, man, there it is. Jesus says, when someone comes to, to salvation, to new faith, and are forgiven and adopted, they are being baptized into a relationship not only with the Father. They're not being baptized into a relationship that's only with the Son, not only with the Holy Spirit, all three The totality of our God is whom we are connected to, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Trinity was proclaimed by Christ in that moment. Well, as the New Testament goes on, the apostles, through the letters they wrote, we call them the epistles, they articulated this Trinitarian truth even more. More dots connected. But then entered the the first centuries of the Christian era. And it's really fascinating to study what happened in those first centuries that Christians were around. Well, one of the things they debated a lot was the Trinity. The Trinity was one of their favorite topics to discuss. To be clear, they were not creating any truth. They were explaining They were synthesizing, they were putting language on what the Bible clearly taught. And so these first Christians were like, how do we explain what the scriptures are saying about God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit? Again, I mentioned that's when the term Trinity was suggested. And they were like, oh, I like that. Try unity, three in one. Trinity, and they grabbed that term. And they started debating how we explain this. And there was not always agreement in those debates. In those early centuries, there were some Christians who tried to explain it 
And people would say, no, no, you're wrong. No, that's not. They'd say, no, you're heretical. <laughs> they would get strong. They'd say, that's heresy. Let me tell you some of the Trinitarian heresies. One of them was modalism. Right? Modalism is these people who said, you know what it's kind of like? It's just that God shows up in different modes. If God wants to, you know, show up as the Son, He can say, all right, I'm going to be Jesus, the Son. And then God says, I can also show up as the Holy Spirit, a little more mysterious. Or I can be God the Father. It's almost like one God putting on three different outfits, modes. And people said, no, no, that's not right. That's not biblical. It's interesting, but wrong. Because it's celebrating the oneness. There is only one God. One of the things... Scripture is so clear on. Back in the days of Moses, the Shema was, Hear, O Lord Israel, there is only one God, and the Lord is one. The oneness of God is so clear in Scripture. And the modalists had the oneness thing, but they were denying the personhood of the three, saying that they're just kind of modes God shows up in. No, it's more than modes. They would be reminded that the Bible speaks of God the Father talking to Jesus, God the Son. There is personhood in these three. And to deny them personhood is to deny the Trinity. On the other extreme, so that's modalism. On the other extreme was tritheism. People so wanting to embrace the three persons of the Trinity that they essentially described like three different gods. Some would say, I really like Jesus, the Son, because he's so nice and so loving and kind. And God the Father is a little more harsh. And They're like, wait a minute. You're, you're acting like they have three personalities. This is one being, you know. And anything that's true about Jesus, personality-wise, is true about God the Father and true about God the Holy Spirit because there's only one being being described. And they said, tritheism is wrong. And so they fought for the right language. And one of the big moments was when a creed was written called the Athanasian Creed, which kind of provided greater clarity to how these three persons and exist in one being. Uh, the Athanasian Creed was expressed graphically with what has been called the Trinity Shield. Can I show you? Here's a stained glass window that has this Trinity Shield and only at the Compass Church do you learn Latin. You ready? Here we go. Yes, it's Latin. Dios means God. So God's in the middle of the Trinity shield. Pater is father, paternal, you see it. Filios is son. And Spiritus Sanctus, Holy Spirit. Oh, you know Latin. That's great. All right. And then it says these connectors on the outside that says non este which means not is, is not. In other words, it's providing a reminder that we must distinguish the personhood and not diminish the personhood of each member of the Trinity. In other words, the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are, they're distinct persons. And yet, the Father is Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And so this diagram illustrates the tension 
of saying, don't go too far into modalism where you deny the distinction of the three persons, but don't go too far into tritheism where you celebrate the distinction of the three persons without being reminded that they're all one God. Huh? Some of you are like, man, this is confusing. Yes, it is, and I want to acknowledge that. In fact, let me go on to another statement that points to the mystery. This statement was not found in any ancient creed, but it's my statement. Uh, I came up with it, and I think it helps me illustrate what I see uh, explained about the Trinity. Next slide. Here's what I like to say. The Trinity, there is a beautiful and mysterious complexity to our God. Uh, in a heart, in a statement, that's what the Trinity reveals. Let's, let me start with complexity. Can we talk about that? When we learn the Trinity, we discover, oh, Lord, uh, you're not as simple as I would have presumed you to be. You know, by simple, I'm, I'm sort of pointing to the fact that there is this relationship, a, a community in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in community. The, the complexity could be illustrated with the, the picture that we used for the logo of this series. This is called the uh, Trinity Knot. Irish, any Irish here? Irish Christians from way back, they, they saw this diagram and they grabbed it and they said, that illustrates the Trinity so well. They started carving it into their ancient churches back then. But if you'll see, the Trinity Knot is composed of three arcs. There's one, there's two, and there's three. Three arcs symbolizing the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brought together in perfect unity and then the circle represents that he is one being. Three persons existing in one being. And you say, boy, that's complex. Especially when compared to us. Let's move this over. And here's us. We are simple. We are one being, one person. That's all you get. And we say, well, this is all I know. I mean, I'm surrounded by one being, one person People all the time, yep. And therefore, to understand the complexity, the richness of who God is, it's hard. Do you wish God were less complex? No. The right answer is no. <laughs> we're boring. Let's just be frank. You know, you meet us and we're like, yeah, we had lunch. Do you have any other questions? And you're like, I told you all there is there is about me. That's all you, you see what you get. You know, there's just a, an inherent shallowness in us compared to the rich complexity in God. And that's a good thing. Let's go back to the statement. So God is complex. I'm going to call it mysterious. Mysterious, you remember I said, do you get it? And I, uh, you know, you look at me like, I get it in part, but I don't get it. You never will. The, the beauty of the Trinity is the mystery. How can there be a three-person, one-being God? I, I, I hear you, but I, I can't. I've never seen that. I don't understand that. And one of the things that we should know is that there is a admittedly mysterious component to this that as we grow in our theological knowledge, we never master theology. I have a master's of divinity. It's a degree I got. That's a 
dumb title for a degree because you never master divinity. Never. There is a rich depth to God that remains a mystery, and we can grow in our understanding and connect more dots, but it's never mastered. Are you okay with mystery? The fact that you can't fully understand it, does that bother you? Some people live well with mystery. Others are like, I can't stand it. You know, one of those who really struggled was Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States. Here's how he felt about the mystery of the Trinity. Here's a quote. He said, we must do away with. We must do away with the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic that three are one and that one is three. Thomas Jefferson, if you know, he he wanted to call himself a Christian, but he rejected much that didn't make sense to him, much of what we would call orthodoxy. And to Thomas Jefferson, he was a scientist, a very uh, brilliant guy who wanted to understand. And if he couldn't understand it, if he couldn't make it tidy and clean, he would rather reject it. And that's what happened with the Trinity with him. He's just like, ah, three beings, one God, three doesn't equal one, and one doesn't equal three, you know, come on. It's bad math. He struggled with mystery. And folks, I would tell you, we must embrace it. We must say, God, I love that at this stage in my intellectual development, I can't get my mind around who you are. I have a picture of an iceberg. You know, I, I was reading, icebergs, you only see 10% of the iceberg. 90% is below the surface. That's kind of how we are with God. God says, I am plural and I am one. I am three persons. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet I am one God. And we're like, oh, I see that, but I don't fully get it. I I know I'm only seeing part of it. I've never seen or understood a three-person, one-being entity before. And God says, yeah, that's all you're going to get to understand at this stage. Someday we'll go beneath the surface. Do you know that when we go to heaven... We're going to be given an improved brain, uh, capable of understanding greater things. Could you guys leave this up for a moment? I'm going to change illustrations, but come back to this. We, we uh, celebrate things we don't understand all the time. Uh, for example, my cell phone. Do you understand how your cell phone works? I mean, I know it works. I, I, I look at the weather and news and call people on the other side of the world and somehow like electron, I don't even know what it is, radio waves, something goes out there and it connects and gathers. I don't understand it, and yet I appreciate it. Uh, the fact that you, maybe you understand it. There are greater minds who do understand this. Just like in heaven, we will have greater minds to understand spiritual realities that are impossible for us to grasp today. The Trinity is not absurd. It is incomprehensible, as Thomas Jefferson said. It's mysterious. It cannot be fully understood, but it's not absurd. Absurdity, the phone is not absurd. Absurdity is irrational stuff that can never be true. It just doesn't make sense. The Trinity makes sense, and someday we will understand it. But at this stage, we can't. There's still a mysterious portion. There's all of that below the surface. The great thing about this is, I love, I hope you 
increasingly love that God is mysterious. Because mystery means discovery. Mystery means you've not mastered divinity, and so you will discover more about God in this life as you learn theology and connect the dots, and in heaven when you go beneath the surface. Isn't that great? That in heaven we'll be learning, and we'll go deeper in heaven and understand more of God, and then after a thousand years, we'll go deeper still in heaven. And after a thousand years, deep, God is infinite. And our discovery of more about his beautiful complexity will go on through all eternity in heaven. And discovering more of God, that's fun. We like to discover. It's why we wrap gifts at Christmas. We don't put gifts unwrapped under the tree and just say, well, yeah, that's what you're going to get. No, we want to unwrap it and go, woohoo, look it. And the same with God. The more we discover about him, we say, oh, I never knew that, and I love it. And later on, oh, I understand even more, and I understand even more. And I pray that you and I, we can come to love the incomprehensible elements of who God is and celebrate the mystery. In fact, that brings us back to our statement where we've seen that God's complex in a mysterious way, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful and mysterious complexity. I'm praying that even as this series progresses through the three weeks, we will find ourselves loving that God is like this. You know, the ancients did. Let me go back to the stained glass window for a moment. Ancient churches that are like 800 years old, dating back to the Middle Ages, they were the ones who first started designing stained glass windows with this Latin technical diagram. Does it dawn on you? I can't believe they put that in stained glass. Does it dawn on you that some Christians wrapped or tried to wrap their head around the Trinity as much as they could, and they said, oh, that's beautiful. And you're like, do you get it? Not fully. But it's beautiful. (laughs) I'm only seeing part of the iceberg, but what I see is beautiful. And they said, it's so beautiful. Let's hire an artist who cuts glass and let's decorate our church with this truth about God. Let's light, let the light shine through it and beautify the environment and celebrate because it's beautiful. And I pray that increasingly you see it that way. That you'd say, do I fully get the Trinity? No, but what I see, oh, it's beautiful. That God is love. That God is community at the very core. That there's love within God because he has always been community. Was God ever lonely? Is that why he made us? No. God was never lonely because there was community within God from eternity past. He always has been and always will be community. And each member of the Trinity, I love it because it reveals some of the glory of who God is. The Father, we're we're to call him Father. He loves us with a fatherly love. And we say, oh, I love that about God. But that's revealed by the Father, but true of all three persons of the Trinity. And And I love the Son, Jesus, because Jesus reveals the selfless devotion of God willing to go to the cross and die for you and me so that we could be forgiven of our sins. I can't believe he'd do that for me. That, is, that devotion is true, not just of Jesus. It's revealed most in Jesus, 
but it is true of the totality of God. And the Holy Spirit, I love how the Holy Spirit demonstrates God's desire to be near us. I mean, back in Genesis 1, 2, it was the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the water, trying to get as close as he could. And today, it's the Holy Spirit that comes to planet Earth and enters into the people of God, longing to be with us, to be in us, to empower us, to share life with us. That desire to be near is best expressed through the Holy Spirit, but it's true of God in his totality. And suddenly we're just like, I don't get it all. But man, what I see is beautiful. And I love it. The beautiful and mysterious complexity that is our God. You know, the dots are starting to get filled in more and more. And as they do, the picture of who God is and what he's like, is being formed more and more. And the more we see him, the more we love him. Remember our church mission statement is to love him more. So more love him. And my prayer is the more we see God and understand who he is and what he's like, the more we would love him and worship him and live for him. Let me read you one final verse in closing. This is Psalm 145, verse 3. It simply says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That simple verse says a lot, doesn't it? What is God like? He is great. The more you understand about God, the more you're saying, man, you are great. Your greatness is amazing. Is it fully understood? No. No one can fathom the depths of God's greatness. But what we see is beautiful. And what we see is enough for us to say he is most worthy of praise. And that's what we're going to do right now having studied our God and stretched our brain, maybe cramped our brain, to wrap our mind around what God is like, we come away saying, Lord, I don't get all of who you are, but the more I see, the more I love you and find you worthy of praise. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to praise. Lord, we love that you are Trinity, three in one, that there is only one God, but in some mysterious way, there is a complexity to your nature. We love that about you, that you are community, that you are love, even before you created others. We love that you're Father, and we love that you're Son, Jesus, and we love that you're Holy Spirit. Lord, we're going to keep studying and learning because we want to connect the dots. We long to see you and love you more as a result. Lord, show us your glory. We have come to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.